Well, uh, hello. We'd like to welcome you to the Outer Edge of Reality, the Anecdotal Notes podcast. I'm one of your hosts, James Aiken, also known as Pat Aiken, a.k.a. Shaken Aiken, for those who really know me. And I'm joined by my co-host, Steve High. Hello, this is Steve. I'm the other host. And our entire focus of the Anecdotal Notes podcast is going to be on the paranormal world. However, uh, I warn you that in the future, if we find a person that is interesting or something else, we may insert a show about that topic. So don't be surprised, you know, if one day, you know, you hear about a rock band, if we have uh, a favorite rock band and we can get those guys on the podcast. Mm -hmm. However, our primary focus is the world of the paranormal. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that, you know, this is just my personal opinion, but I think things are very much interrelated in the paranormal world. Uh, Once I held the belief, for instance, and we're talking say specifically about the world of uh, Bigfoot research. Well, over the years since my incident, I've changed my notion about things. I'm not disputing or saying that Bigfoot might be a flesh and blood creature, but on the other hand, I'm saying that there is a spectrum of possibilities of what Bigfoot could be. What do you think? Absolutely. I think we should at least entertain the possibility that there is a wide spectrum of theories and possibilities about what lays at the root of the phenomenon. Um, I've always believed that even if Bigfoot is not a flesh and blood creature, and even if it's not a entity that has some paranormal connections or connections to other dimensions or other universes or whatever the case may be, even if it's nothing more than what a lot of skeptics tend to point out as like a case of mass hysteria or people misidentifying bears or people in fursuits or anything like that, that that to me is every bit as interesting a subject to look at as a flesh and blood creature simply because why would people misidentify bears, you know, one day and then, because a lot of these sightings happen in places where people live with bears all the time, then all of a sudden, why would they pick one day to suddenly misidentify a bear for something else? A lot of, there are those skeptics who say that, well, mankind has some sort of innate need to see hairy people in the woods or monsters in the woods or just some sort of psychological need to have that, you know, boogeyman under the bed Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And to me, that's equally fascinating as to, well, if that's the case, then why? What lays at the root of that? Why would somebody go out in the woods and see an eight-foot-tall hairy ape because he has some sort of psychological need to? Mm-hmm. You know, that to me is every bit as fascinating a subject as he actually saw an ape. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. You know, we, I mean, you, you've already strayed off into the world of Gustav Jung. That's right. Th- that's right. One thing, one thing I, should, I should warn our listeners is that we are not professional hosts by any stretch of the imagination. We're a couple of regular guys, so expect a lot of going off on tangents and a lot of yeah. stray topics to talk about. and. and if, if we're conscientious, which I think we are, we'll try to prod ourselves to get back on track. But expect a lot of, of, of intellectual wanderings on this show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know what? The entire point of our podcast 
is we're really going to delve into this stuff and we're going to intellectualize it and we're going to talk about it, mm-hmm. but we're also going to have some fun with this. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm so sick of, you know, you know people, it's, it's almost, I'm sorry to say, but in some circles, I mean, this has become almost like a religion. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you have like a Calvinist Bigfooter yeah. or you have a Catholic Bigfooter mm-hmm. or or whatever. Yeah, or a Jim Jones cult Bigfooter. I mean, oh, we got, pl- we got plenty of those. Out there. But, I mean, you know, the thing is, really, none of us, at least to my knowledge, let me just, I'll, I'll add that caveat. To my knowledge, we don't have one living in our backyard or in our garage. Mm-hmm. And amazingly enough, if a person says that they have one living in their backyard or garage and you go out to see it, mm-hmm. he's never there. Yeah. You know, I've heard all sorts of stories about people, you know, they're experts on this and they're experts on that. And mm. I grew up, Bigfoot was living under the house. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's like we fed him grits through the floorboards. But, <laughs> you know, you get out there and it's like, okay, well, you know, where, where he, he was too fast. You, what do you mean he's too fast? He's you know he's like nine foot tall and weighs nearly a thousand pounds. You don't think? But he's he, shy. I think he, you scared him. That's what it was. I mean, you know, <laughs> I've gone on, gosh, just countless investigations. Mm-hmm. You know, over the years with when we were um, together in the Georgia Swamp Ape Research Center, yeah. but also R.I.P. Yes, right. <laughs> it, uh, just on my own after that time mm-hmm. on the down low. You know, I just kind of I'd hear something and go see it. And I'm sorry to say, you know, 90% of the time, you get out there and Bigfoot's, you know, Bigfoot always has a do not disturb sign on Mm -hmm. the door when you get to these locations where these Mm -hmm. people give you these incredible tales. You know, Uh there are herds of Bigfoot Mm -hmm. living behind my uh, house, you know. Yeah, you go out there and it's like, well, you know, this looks like another patch of woods like I've been in. you know, no footprints, whatever. Mm-hmm. But you see, here's the thing, and this is the point I want to make mm-hmm. about my situation and about exactly the topic that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, if we just logically assume that 90% of this is hype, internet crap, mm-hmm. all of that sort of thing, you know, people. People just blowing stories up. And, and you know what? I don't care. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bother me. You know, we have a need for campfire stories. Yeah. People like to go and get a little scared and they go mm-hmm. in the woods, the darkness, you know. Yeah. Perhaps it's primordial. It's a primordial thing left over from the Pleistocene or oh, something. Yeah. We have the to whole, I mean, just look at the horror movie business. I mean, that's right. just all of those films that come out that, that sole purpose is to scare people. I mean, just watching you. You know what's going to happen. You, you're going to get scared. You're going to get those jumps out of your seat. You're going to get the, the 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 blood and guts and the horror and whatever goes on for those kind of movies nowadays. But uh, people go in there. They enjoy it. They want it. It fulfills some sort of basic need to kind of, if they don't walk the edge in their normal lives as far as as far as being scared or stressed or anything like that. I guess it provides some sort of psychological outlet. You know, yes, some sort of animal need that every once in a while that you're going to hear a, a bump in the night or something and it's going to make your hair stand up on end and even, even though a lot of people would say that sensation is unpleasant and they think they would try to avoid it at the same time there is a need for that kind of thing sure 
I mean, you think about it, you know, going to a horror movie, people go with the expectation yeah. Yeah. that they're going to get that adrenaline rush, that mm -hmm. they're going to experience this. Yeah. I don't, and I really, you know what, I don't think it's any different from someone mm. sitting down next to a campfire mm -hmm. or even, you know, listening to a podcast yeah. or wherever. And, okay, th they suspend disbelief and they're there and they mm -hmm. have the story. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I think about Bigfoot, is there is a seed of truth, okay, mm -hmm. uh, where I might dispute some, you know, some stories and say, mm -hmm. well, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But there are some credible stories that people have told. Mm -hmm. You know, and in my own experience, though I'll readily admit, I never saw a creature, mm -hmm. okay, mm -hmm. but I saw the evidence of something mm -hmm. that passed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time, I felt something that I haven't felt since. Mm -hmm. It was something that, that came from within my own psyche mm -hmm. that, you know, I didn't know really I was capable capable of feeling that way. Yeah. And I think it's that that kind of points to a difference between the experience that we just talked about, like in horror movies and things where we kind of go in with an expectation that, yeah, we're about to get scared or we're about to feel something very strange. But at the same time, it's a very controlled environment. It's mm -hmm. a controlled, I mean, you, you're in a theater, you know you're, you're relatively safe or you're in your living room watching it on television. Or if you're listening to this podcast, you're in somewhere comfortable, you control your surroundings, you know, there's no monster that's fixing to come out of your bed and grab you while you're watching the TV. But then when you go out in in a situation like you were in, mm -hmm. where you were, and we'll get into all that here in a little bit, but when you were out investigating that call and you're out there in the woods and you're seeing this kind of evidence and you're experiencing the experience that we're talking about, but the environment and the situation is no longer controlled. You genuinely feel vulnerable. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and another thing I want the listener to take away from this is I am on many levels, at least at the time of this, I was an unwilling participant. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just have to say, I mean, I'm not going to say that I had never heard of Bigfoot, okay? You know, I went to the cinema back in the 70s when uh, several of these documentaries came out. And, and being from a small town in the mm -hmm. south, yeah. you know, that was a big deal for us. You, uh, could, you could relate to it uncomfortably closely. <laughs> right. That's, that, that's absolutely right. But I didn't believe in it. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I, I mean, I... Uh, well, you know, for us to go to the movie was a big treat. And I think that on a certain level... I took it as a child as something that was from Hollywood. Mm -hmm. This 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 stuff happened on the West Coast. This happened up, you know, British yeah. Columbia, Washington State. You know, I you know, in the fourth yeah, when grade. Yeah, you know, when, when you were a young child in Georgia, I mean, Arkansas is, I guess, is technically part of the South. A lot of people consider it Southern, but. At the same time, you know, when you're a child in Georgia, Arkansas might as well be the, the backside of Mars. That's right. <laughs> you know, uh, in Washington State, mm -hmm. man, that's 2,000 miles away. So, yeah. you know, I look at the map, you know, I'm in fourth grade, and I see where I'm at, and then I find where this place was in the movie, mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, 
you know, that's... 1,500 miles, that's yeah, halfway across the country. It's on the moon, <laughs> yeah. you know. I, I don't have to worry about this thing yeah. if it is real. Yeah, I'm whatever gonna, it is, it ain't walking that far to get me, so... So, that's right. <laughs> so, so you know, I, I think that going into my situation, I, I just really felt like at first I was probably in denial. Mm-hmm. And Pro- probably at the, at this juncture now, uh, there are a couple of resources we're going to point you to as far as as mm-hmm. the story of Elkins Creek and how it fits into the broad spectrum of of Bigfoot evidence. But I think just for a moment, I think we're going to give you a very brief, very rough rundown of of the background for this, and I'll let Pat do that. But if and we'll also at the end of this we'll point you to a, if you wanted to read more detail and more in-depth analysis of it we'll point you to a couple of books that'll head you in the right direction but just for a very brief background to this okay well the thumbnail sketch okay at the, at the time of the elkins creek cast i was a uh, deputy sheriff and in those days, in the jurisdiction that I was in, at night, you were by yourself, basically. And, you know, th- things were a little different in those days in that we had a lot more discretion, apparently, than police forces do now. So, you know, while I did go out and I did write tickets, for instance, and I had to arrest people on occasion, I could be much more of a diplomat. Hmm. Didn't, you know, didn't, there wasn't well, we, any... Well, you're in a small town law enforcement. Right. I mean, the police generally knew on a personal level a lot of people they deal with. They they knew who the troublemakers were in the town. They dealt with them on a regular basis. Right. And, oh, Fred, I got to deal with you again tonight. Well, get in the back of the car. You right. Know, one of those deals. Well, yeah. maybe a little bit tougher than Mayberry, but yeah. you, you know what I'm saying. We, yeah. you, you go out and, and you are diplomatic and you try to help people, you know, I always said that I was trying to be a peace officer rather mm-hmm. than a police officer. Yeah. But in any event, you know, I'm out there, I'm by myself, and, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night, even in a small town, there's a lot of activity, so you're always pressed for time. And when you're the only guy working in a county, it's 250 square miles. Mm-hmm. You know, you it might take you 20 minutes, okay? We didn't have walkie-talkie radios at that time. If, if I went to a call, I had to take the time to stretch the microphone from the uh, car radio through the window so that if I did get in trouble, I would have to fight my way back <laughs> to call from help. I mean, you yeah. know, and that's mm-hmm. not an exaggeration. That is 100% true. Mm-hmm. People... A lot of people in big urban areas cannot conceive of this, and mm-hmm. and, and I don't think it's true now. I think mm-hmm. they have beautiful repeater systems and oh, stuff on your shoulder, on your shoulder stuff, yeah. and you, you can do all that stuff, but in those mm-hmm. days, wasn't like that. Well, anyway, there was a, one particular uh, person who kept calling. They, they kept, uh, it was an old man, and kept saying he was being harassed. And like I said, I'm not going to go into all the detail of this because... I'll mention the two books at the end, and you can you can go explore this and uh, perhaps benefit these authors as well because there are lots of people that are involved in this um, field of investigation, you know, and they've done great jobs in both cases of kind of telling the story of Elkins Creek and uh, of the Georgia Swamp Bank Research Center. But anyway, long story short, the guy was kind of curmudgeonly. 
you you know, no matter how hard I tried, never could get there in time to see anybody. You know, I would, and I at that time we had just got those portable million uh, candle power spotlights and stuff, so I could you know I could light the area up very well. He made all sorts of complaints. His dogs went missing. Uh, dog food bags, 50-pound bags going missing. You know, someone tapping on the outside of the house. Um, at one point, he said someone was uh, whispering the name of his little dog in the house, Peanut. He, that was one thing that happened. Well, it, you know, as an investigator and a person who's just basically completely removed from any kind of uh, actual involvement or knowledge in this area, I thought, well, obviously, if, if a person's whispering mm -hmm. to you through the walls of your house, yeah. A, they, they're probably a human, yeah. and B, you know, they, there's a reason behind this. There's something going on mm -hmm. that they're either he's made a neighbor mad, mm -hmm. or th there's some, you know, overarching concern because they want this guy out of this property. And that was that was really, you know, what is what are we up against? Is this neighborhood kids mm -hmm. just messing with this guy? Mm -hmm. And his wife, or or is this something else? Well, I believed in, uh, frankly, uh, at the time, I never did even assume that it could be something else. My thought was that because of the proximity to the water source, which was Elkins Creek, that someone potentially had either a, uh, a legal moonshine still down the creek somewhere, mm -hmm. and they wanted easier access in and out to take the product, mm -hmm. or a pot grub. Mm -hmm. I figured, you know, still, you know, in lots of places that are going to be listening, you know, marijuana is legal now, mm -hmm. but in Georgia, it's still. If you're caught with marijuana, mm -hmm. you, you're going to pay the price, mm -hmm. uh, you know, legally in our state. Mm -hmm. So, things being as they were, uh, I rocked on with it until finally. Uh, I saw a, a push tire from a tractor. Uh, and anyone who's been from a, a kind of an, a grown up or is familiar with a very agricultural area, it was not a, a huge, like, industrial sized tractor like they would have in a cornfield up in uh, Kansas or Iowa or somewhere. Mm -hmm. It was a smaller tractor tire, but it still probably weighed 350 pounds. Mm -hmm. Well, I went out there. And one's been thrown up and hooked in a tree, mm -hmm. about 20 feet up in the tree. Mm -hmm. So you know, best I can, I don't have time to, uh, you know, this this really doesn't constitute like a felony case. Mm -hmm. So I don't have time to, to call in and and stop and go get a 20 foot ladder mm -hmm. and do all this other, you know, the calls are mounting up. But I knew then, because I could at least examine and see, where no one had placed a block and tackle. Mm -hmm. No one had, you know, even just thrown a rope across a branch. Mm -hmm. This thing appeared to have been freely thrown mm -hmm. up into the tree. Well, I said, from that point, I said, you know, there's something else going on here. I do, you know, I've known some pretty strong guys in my life. Mm -hmm. Never known anybody could, could do that. Not a human. So, time progressed on, and eventually, 
I had to change uh, jurisdictions simply for economic reasons because, you know, it was starving to death. Not, so uh, I moved to another jurisdiction, but before I left, uh, I asked uh, the old man there, I said, look, do you mind if I come back and one like a, a, a day when I can really walk the creek and see if I can't figure out what's going on? And I had, you know, incidentally, I was carrying everything in one of those pilot briefcases. I had like a little forensics kit and some casting uh, matter, you know, stuff like that. And I'd always carry it because I was constantly getting out of my out of my personal vehicle into a patrol car. Mm -hmm. So I just kept it in my car. So that morning I did, and you know, I, at the time I was carrying a uh, 40 caliber Beretta. And I got there early one morning, probably seven-ish, because it was it was gray. It was just getting daylight, and I went across his yard, and I didn't see any lights in the house, but I had gotten the permission, so I said, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go on. He knows who it is. He recognized my, my vehicle. Went down, and I never found a really well-worn path, but you could see at one area where there was access back where someone in the tall grass, you could see an, an egress and an access point. I followed it. I went down, I don't know, a mile, and see nothing, nothing on the bank. I was looking, you know, I, it, I studied cutting sign, tracking, those sorts of things, because we actually, in a rural area, you have to use that sort of thing. You have to be able to, to read the ground and know if something has crossed it. You, you have to look for telltale signs, broken branches. So the entire time I'm scanning as I'm walking down the bank of the creek. And I couldn't figure out because even on the other bank, I couldn't see any disturbance in the grass. I couldn't see, you know, branches misplaced, branches broken. Kept walking, kept walking. Went to finally a wide place in the creek. And in, in, in the creek, it was shaped at that time sort of like an elongated boomerang a little bit. It was a mud bank. Uh, probably, I don't know, composition because the soil down in that area is sandy. But it was red, sandy, had pebbles in it. That sort of composite sort of, uh, I don't know, what's it called, alluvium? I think so, yeah. alluvial plains. Uh, right, yeah. it's where sediment has, has built up over time because mm -hmm. of the flow of water. I get down there and I notice something that hadn't caught my eye upstream. And I looked and I see, because there was not a terribly fast current in the creek, but there was a current. I noticed that there was sediment floating in the water. You know, I'm like, what the hell? What is this? So I walk over and look down. And the water appeared to me to be probably three, two, three feet at this place. And I saw what appeared to be a footprint. So I walked further, and sure enough, there's another impression. A little bit further, another impression. Then I got finally very close to and adjacent to where the, the mud bank was in the middle of the creek, or the 
sandbar, whatever you want to call it. But and there, very prettily, was sitting a footprint. So I lowered myself. I went. There was trees and there was some stuff, and I was able to uh, lower myself down in the creek on that side. And I walked over and I looked back up the creek, and it's probably at that place five, six feet from the bank down to the, the floor of the creek. And I'm looking, I'm looking up the creek, down the creek, and there's no disturbance, it's just water, just this thing's left. I get over to the, to the, to the footprint, and amazingly enough, you know, I thought, sort of, you know, Johnny Law, I got you. Mm-hmm. you know? The only problem was when I got up to the footprint, Okay, we're talking about the early spring when this was done. This mm-hmm. is like in April. It was still getting down to the 30s and 40s here mm-hmm. at that time. And the footprint was roughly <laughs> 18 inches long mm-hmm. and about 7 or 8 inches wide. Beautiful footprint. And I don't know. I remember standing there for just a little bit, and I remember cogitating. I remember thinking, you know, what, what is this? You know, what am I looking at? Mm-hmm. I looked up over, and I saw on the far bank, which you have to understand is another probably seven feet in distance, mm-hmm. but five feet up. Mm-hmm. And I see a place, a scuff mark next to a tree mm-hmm. where obviously someone had stepped in one step up and exited the creek. Well, you know, I mean, let's just be honest. My mind was doing somersaults. Mm -hmm. And there's no other way, you know, there's no other way to explain that to someone. My gut said, okay, what is this? You know, who's done this? Who's going to go through all of this trouble to place this footprint back in the middle? Mm-hmm. of this creek mm-hmm. and it was pretty obvious no one was really frequenting the creek yeah it's, it, it's the middle of nowhere it's the middle of nowhere yeah. it's just this one beautiful footprint now there were others but they were all underwater and therefore not castable mm-hmm. at least they, they probably have stuff with what you now. had with what you had available right yeah yeah so I, I mean I'm standing there and then the strange thing happened this is something I'll never forget, and this Mm. has always stuck out in my mind. Mm. It was a clear spring day. Mm. It was early. It was still gray, but Mm. I didn't see any clouds in the sky. But I suddenly was inundated with a smell of ozone. Mm. I've never been able to make sense of why. You know how ozone happens before you get a very powerful thunderstorm Mm -hmm. sometimes. Yeah. or if you get, or if you get like close to a big light bulb or something like that, and with some, anything, electric current going through the air will generate an ozone field around it, and it mm-hmm. has a very particular smell to it. Right. Sometimes big light bulbs or fixtures or something like that will do that too. Right. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's that's exactly, and I, you know, I remember smelling that, and in my mind, I just made a mental note. I said, oh, I think it's about to rain. It was only later uh-huh. that I realized that. It never did rain. It didn't rain. It wasn't a cloud in the sky. Mm -hmm. So I'm standing there. I'm smelling this. I'm trying to make sense in my mind of what I'm seeing. 
And it was at that point, and I don't know, I think only a person, and I've heard this account before from other people who've been in close proximity, but a feeling came over me that I'd never felt before. You know, I'm not a very scared person, just to be honest with you. Never, you know, I've perhaps been, you know, foolhardy in my life because of this, but but the simple truth is that day, I remember the hair standing up on my arms, on my neck, and I remember for the first time feeling like I was under observation. Mm-hmm. And I looked around, I could just barely see over the bank at the surrounding area. Mm-hmm. Never saw anything there. Mm-hmm. Now. After 20 years of thinking about this, I will tr- have to admit to you that I never looked up. And, you know, that, that has haunted me because the many times I cleared the outside of the man's house, mm-hmm. I looked under, mm-hmm. I looked around, mm-hmm. but I never looked up mm-hmm. in the trees. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that's, you know, that may just be something incidental to this, Mm -hmm. but I do know this. I know that I pulled my pistol, Mm -hmm. and I stood there for a minute, and I just felt like, you know, okay, so you're imminently going to be attacked or something, Mm -hmm. and then I thought better, and I said, you know, I really need to take a cast of this, Mm -hmm. okay? So, I mean, and I'm not, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Mm-hmm. I eased my big self back up out of that creek <laughs> and back walked for a little ways away from the area to go back to my vehicle mm-hmm. to get the plaster. Flash forward 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. I've come back. Nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. The print's still there. Never felt that feeling again that mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. Made the cast. And, you know, at the time, we, I, I was, you know, I made people superior to me aware mm-hmm. of this, and no one, you know, mm-hmm. we're not touching this. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, uh, the best thing I can do is I'm going to keep this mm-hmm. as a memento, mm-hmm. and I'm going to put it in the closet up there in mm-hmm. my house, mm-hmm. and we're just mm-hmm. going to forget about this. Yeah. This is one of those mementos of a glorious law enforcement career. That's right. <laughs> you know, and, okay, so we flash forward from there to 1997 or so. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I knew you from the locality that we both frequented. Mm-hmm. And... I was in there, and you, I don't even remember exactly who you were talking to, but I remember I overheard you talking mm-hmm. about... Yeah, I think I was talking to somebody else that, that happened to work at that locality, and uh, the subject came up, I think, of paranormal things in general. I think there was a couple of ghost stories traded and all that kind of stuff, because the location that we used to meet in was kind of notorious for having occasional uh, paranormal experiences, like unexplainable cold breezes and noises and things 
it is a very old building in the in the center of of the town and uh, it had an upstairs that had been long abandoned and just used for storage and there's you hear occasional stories of things going on up there but uh as I recall from that time, we had, had talked about a, a belief in various things, and I brought up the subject of Bigfoot, and I made the comment that I think, Pat, I think you overheard at the time, because I think you were sitting there behind the counter, mm-hmm. that um, I had always wanted to go to the Pacific Northwest to study the Bigfoot phenomenon. Right. Now, at this time, um, and all the way back to my my early teenage years, I had read voraciously on the subject of about any paranormal subject you can think of, mm-hmm. UFOs, ghosts, Bigfoot, Loch Ness monster, abominable snowman. I mean, all of the ones that readily come to mind, and a lot of other obscure ones. And um, I was just, even though I had a, a scientific bent of mind, I was just absolutely fascinated by that. The whole outer edge of reality, I guess you could call it, mm. like we talk about on the show. And uh, I think, Pat, you had just decided just to just kind of open up and say, well, maybe you don't have to go to the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, uh, that was the thing. And I, I kind of half-jokingly did it. Yeah, because, I mean, the, in my mind and, and all a lot of people's minds who have read the general literature on the subject, John Green's book, Apes Among Us, Ivan Sanderson's uh, The Yeti, and and all of these other books that have come out, you get the impression very quickly that it is the phenomena is generally isolated to the Pacific Northwest with one or two stories maybe emerging out of southern Florida. Right. Or the Swamp Ape. That's right. So when you started bringing it up about, well, maybe you don't have to go so far. Yeah, well, it's like I, I told you that day. I said, you know, I got this cast, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. Never figured out, but it's, it's up to house, and I'll bring it. Yeah. And that's, you know, it went from there, and you started talking about sending out to uh, Dr. Krantz. Yeah, because at that time, I think it was probably literally just a few weeks prior to this that I had just finished reading Grover Krantz's book, uh, Big Footprints. And if you're not familiar, uh, Dr. Krantz, who is now uh, passed on, unfortunately, uh, he was a physical anthropologist in, I think, Washington State University. I believe so. And I think also spent some time at University of Oregon. But uh, he, he was um, primarily interested in uh, physical anthropology and human evolution. And he had some uh, instances that he had become involved in in Washington State, which caused him to think that, well, maybe there's stuff here that, while not absolutely compellingly convincing, uh, warranted further investigation as far as he was concerned. And I had just, and he he had been on it for quite some time, I think since the late 1960s, and he had written a book called Big Footprints, which essentially presented all of the evidence and the stories that he had gathered to date. And so the whole subject of, of Bigfoot and researching the scientific aspect of it was fairly fresh in my mind. So all of a sudden, here was another piece of evidence that just kind of came out of nowhere locally, which kind of gobsmacked me at the time because I had no idea that that could be anywhere near to where I lived. I thought I was, you know, 3,000 miles away. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and so I thought, I said, well, you know, um, maybe I've got the perfect individual to, to go look at this. Yeah, well, 
I mean, my, my gobsmack moment come just a few months after that. You know, Krantz, you sent it to Krantz, you mm-hmm. come back, and he wouldn't he wouldn't say one way or the other. So at that time, Jeff Meldrum, mm-hmm. I don't know, was he, do you think he was just really starting to be public about this? or? Yeah, this was kind of midway in Jeff Meldrum's exposure to the world in terms of his Bigfoot research. Um, Grover had, and I, I found this out sometime later, actually from Jeff, that when Grover had kept it for some months and we had kind of been in contact with him and Grover finally said and told me over the phone said that he, he believed it was real that it had all the signs of being a real print because as he told me and as he mentioned in his book that he published in his book two or three different traits that he looks for when identifying real footprints but he also has a couple or had a couple that he kept secret that were known only to him that he looks for in identifying prints and he would not tell me what those were. I think I kind of suspected what one of them was. But he had told me that the print also passed those two tests. So, but the most he would say was that it appeared to be real for him, but he could not say anything more because him being in Oregon or Washington State and us being in Georgia and the impracticality of him coming down to investigate the area. And, of course, by this time, you know, the story had been you know, some years right. old. Uh, that there was really no reason for him to come over and investigate, that uh, he had no direct knowledge of the context and where that footprint was found. And the example he said was, well, I mean, it could be the most real-looking footprint in the world, but if somebody found it on a rooftop garden in the middle of New York City, you know, that that would present a problem. So based on not knowing anything about the, the context and not being there when the print was discovered, the most he could say was that it looked real to him, and, which I thought was fair. Right. But come to find out that uh, the reason he would not commit anymore to them was that a couple of years prior he had had a former grad student of his who apparently had a bone to pick with him or they had personality clash, they didn't get along. Anyway, there was bad blood between the two of them. And this uh, aforementioned grad student concocted a footprint with the intention of fooling Grover and what it took the form of was a supposed four-footed not four-footed four-toed track that supposedly originated in Ohio mm-hmm. and it was sent to Grover and Grover looked at it and said well you know this this is it's four toes which is weird but you know this might be weird and then it came out that it was fabricated so basically Grover got burned mm-hmm. so he was he was very uh, care uh, timid in his analysis, I guess. But well, then, you know what, I think he was sick of it, maybe. Yeah, I mean, by this time, he had, you know, he had mentioned in a number of interviews that, that people always ask him that, that if he enjoyed what he did, and he and he would make a very quick point to say, you know, this, and the whole time he's done this, this has not been fun at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it to deal with the people you have to deal with in the Bigfoot community, and if you're in the Bigfoot community, you know exactly what I mean by that statement. Right. And also the damage that he had done to his career by being involved with what many academics consider a outer fringe flake subject, that it harmed his credibility in his field, which is something that he had to fight for a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can understand that. And Jeff Meldrum... Uh, for those of you who are familiar with him, he also has his own stories about how how this subject has affected his career. 
But um, then we decided once we got it back from Grover that we would turn around and send it to Jeff. Right. And Jeff kept it, I think, for a period of what, about six months or so. He yeah. kept it for quite a while. It was a while. Yeah. He examined it, and uh, he felt that from what he could tell from the evidence of the cast, he had a couple of questions about the cleanliness of the cast and where it was found and all that, what kind of uh, substrate it was in. But um, he felt that it's, it's more than likely a real footprint based on his tests and his knowledge. And he also sent it out to an individual that lived in Texas by the name of Jimmy Chilcutt, who he was working with very heavily at the time. And Chilcutt's uh, was a member of, of the police department in Texas, and he was a fingerprint expert and also a dermal ridge expert. And he was one of those guys that goes around the crime scenes and does for fingerprints and skin prints and things like that that try to identify people. And he was, at that time, and probably still is if he's still around, one of the uh, foremost experts in that field, probably in the country. I think he had done consulting for the FBI and a number mm -hmm. of other federal agencies in that regard. And it was, he sent it to uh, Chilcutt, and then Chilcutt sent him a report, which we happen to have copies of, right. that said that as far as Chilcutt was concerned, um, he felt that it was, it represented a real animal. Well, I mean, also, he, if I'm not mistaken, Chilcutt had, uh, through some resource or some method, done uh, a lot of analysis of the the footprints and dermatologics and the things of great apes, mm -hmm. which I never understood because you know the thing I really would have issues with going in trying to fingerprint a silverback gorilla. Well, yeah, and uh, I think as as I recall from from interviews I've seen with Chuck up because he he has appeared on on video and in some shows interviews about his work. Uh, he had gone to uh, zoos at the time when they were doing veterinary examinations of of some of these apes. You know when they were unconscious mm -hmm. and laying on a table, oh, okay. you could Good. you could do that. And he was doing that, and the reason being was that you know he was an academic. He was he was interested in the study of fingerprints and how they evolved from grade A fingerprints to humans. And his goal was to look for those little indicators of you know being able to further narrow down and identify people. Like, for instance, if you'd find a fingerprint somewhere, and if you ran that fingerprint and you couldn't match it to any known individual in your files. Well, then the question came, well, what else could you tell about the individual based on the fingerprint? Right. For instance, there are methods of looking at fingerprints about telling whether the individual involved is a male or a female, um, adult or a child. And also what he was working on typically is uh, race or ethnicity mm. because apparently there's difference between um, a, some uh, the of Asian uh, of uh, Asiatic uh, people's fingerprints versus Caucasian fingerprints versus fingerprints of someone from Sub-Saharan African ancestry right. and, and all of those different ethnic groups, that there are differences among their fingerprints as a group. Mm -hmm. So even if you didn't know the individual, you could tell what sex they were, you could tell, you know, what uh, part of the world they were from or what, you know, what uh, ethnic group they belonged to, mm -hmm. which in law enforcement circles, you know, could be a tremendous help. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's the way he was going by it. So anyway, we get the thing back mm -hmm. from Meldrum, mm -hmm. Dr. Meldrum, and mm -hmm. uh, the letter says, oh, well, this is real. Yeah. I believe that, you know, Something you you took a cast of something yeah that was real 
Yeah. And I remember being stunned that day. I remember just kind of. It absolutely stunned me. I mean, I still have the original report in the envelope that it was sent in. I mean, it was still, it was like a part of my shrine. Right. Know, just, yeah, but, <laughs> but, but, but what was it? You know, it's just like I, I sat there. That was the question. What the heck is this? Yeah. And if, you know, if this was, I mean, even still back in the, in the, in the 1990s, when it was a matter, matter of fact, I think by the time Grover got through analyzing it, Jeff got through analyzing it, Jimmy Chilcott got through, through analyzing it, I think it was about, the, about Y2K when we got all this information back, I think. Right. About two or three years it transpired. And for those of you who have been around since the, the late 80s and, and early mid-90s in this field, you know that and probably not very much has changed out of that because I've been out of the field for some time, but there is a lot of anecdotal things, a lot of stories, a lot of claims of evidence, a lot of very shaky, uh, what are colloquially known as blob squatch photos right. and videos and things like that, that actual hard conf confirmatory evidence or any kind of documentation from scientific examination of any evidence was extraordinarily rare yes. back then and probably still is. And I remember back before the Bigfoot forums that I think everybody who's been around for a while is, is familiar with, there was a website hosted uh, by an individual named George Karras, I think was his last name. Okay. And I don't think that site is active anymore, and I don't know what became of Mr. Karras, but... Um, he was based, I believe, out of Oregon, and he had a very good website that had a f uh, forum on there that kind of, in a miniature way, kind of served the same purpose that the, BF, the Bigfoot forums did later on. And I remember uh, scanning the pages from that report and sending them to George and telling him, say, hey, you know, we just got the results back from this footprint, mm -hmm. and we, we think it would be a good idea that you would that you could post this and for people to see and, yeah. and let the discussion begin. And th doing that made a tremendous impact on the community at the time because, I mean, that kind of evidence and that kind of language from those kind of people was just unheard of. You know, uh, and I only be really became familiar with this after we started our group and, and we began truly trying to go out and research mm -hmm. and look at the terrain and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't realize that essentially prior to that time, anything east of the Mississippi was always suspect. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's not, you know, if it didn't come out of Oregon, mm -hmm. Washington State, British Columbia, yeah. California, mm -hmm. you know, it's junk. Somebody's yeah. out there making, you know. but. Surely, you know, it did change, like you're saying. I mean, I think it changed my perspective mm -hmm. on what we're dealing with or what this subject matter is. Now, obviously, I've changed over time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time, I bought into this notion that everything that we're seeing that's related to this subject was from you know, uh, a hominid. This is from mm -hmm. a flesh and blood creature mm -hmm. that is, you know, living truly on the fringes of our modern society and he he's he or she is occasionally seen. Mm -hmm. They leave evidence. You, you know, that sort of idea to the point where now we're talking about 20-something years later mm -hmm. having, like you, mm -hmm. read looked at evidence on my own, looked at evidence with you, mm -hmm. you know, 
it's just altered my perception. Now, I, I want you to understand, I'm not precluding and uh, saying that there could not possibly be some kind of flesh and blood creature out mm -hmm. there, okay? Mm -hmm. But I think it's wiser, at least to me as a researcher and, and as an investigator, to, to look at this on a spectrum mm -hmm. of probabilities. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people, they like to, to use what they call the truck test, mm -hmm. okay? And again, you know, well, I ran over Bigfoot. Hmm. I shot Bigfoot. Yeah. You know, but almost invariably, you know, when we come back and the bodies get on our, our, our men mm -hmm. in black suits and a white van came up and they carted the thing away and mm -hmm. told us, they took our phones away from us. Yeah. And, and there's always this little hook at the, at the end of these yeah. stories. Yeah, there's always a caveat. Always. Yeah. Always a caveat that, mm -hmm. okay, well, you know, the government knows. The mm -hmm. gov well, you know, if, mm -hmm. if truly, if in the 1970s mm -hmm. the government could take, you know, from 200 miles in orbit a picture mm -hmm. of an individual car, some people say they could mm -hmm. actually magnify to, to get numbers off of a tag if they wanted to. Yeah. Okay? That's 40 years ago. Yeah. If that technology existed then, mm -hmm. they know. Yeah. I mean, considering the computer advances and the things mm -hmm. that have happened since that time, that's yeah. the 70s, do you, do you honestly not think that if this were uh, a caveman mm -hmm. living on the fringes of society, yeah. that we, you know, why, why would the government, I mean, I know that there are lots of plausible explanations mm -hmm. given, but, you know, they're now private entities. Mm -hmm that are not governmental, that have this same technological capability. Mm -hmm. Somebody, you know, I just really, I, honestly, I'm sorry, I mean, I, I'm, I'm well, not. Well, I mean, technological capability and the deployment of it are two different things. True. Um, I mean, everybody knows the number of drones they have out now, and right. uh, we've seen some very, and sometimes some very interesting footage that has been produced by drones in the, the concerning Bigfoot, and I've seen a few of them, and they're kind of interesting. But uh, one of the things that I've always been careful of, and, and if those of you who will, will visit our website, and I hope you do, anecdotalnotes.com, if you look in our bios, one of the things that's mentioned in my bio is that I've always been a rather skeptic of not only humanism and the people's expectations about the capabilities of human reason, but also I've always been a, a skeptic and a doubter of the powers of human observation. If you look at a lot of the theories that espouse a paranormal explanation for not only Bigfoot but a number of other things, usually when you ask, when you try to press about, well, okay, why do you hold that viewpoint? The answer you usually get is some variation of, well, if it was a real flesh and blood or if it was a real object or if it was this or that, then somebody would have X and you fill in the X. Somebody would have run over it. Somebody would have seen it. Somebody would have shot one. Somebody would have done this, that, and the other thing. And Pat, you remember back in the day, it kind of got to a joke that when we went out in the woods that... We were halfway looking for Bigfoot and the other halfway looking for all the people who oh, are supposedly supposed to have been doing all this. I know. I because, well, why don't the game wardens see it? Well, we go out there and, I mean, I've been in the woods I don't know how many times and I think I've seen a game warden one time. 
<laughs> you know, other than on duty, uh -huh. in, in which case sometimes, you know, we'd work with uh, the Department of Natural Resources on cases, yeah. and we'd meet up at places, but but I'll be honest with you, any time mm -hmm. in the past, uh -huh. and, and foolishly, and I'm going to say this right now, I wouldn't do this now, but age gives you wisdom. Yeah. But, you know, I was full of myself back in those days. Yeah. And Youth gives you bravery. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, I would often, mm -hmm. I mean, I would take off and I would go into places, you know, along that, the Flint River into mm -hmm. different areas looking and researching by myself. Now, yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not mm -hmm. going to say that I wasn't carrying like a 300 Winchester Magnum with me yeah. or or a pistol, yeah. sometimes both. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm not crazy. I'm not going to go out there mm -hmm. it, to be at the mercy of what if I do find this thing. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. but never mm -hmm. in the time that I was uh, out there did I ever really encounter any law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Though, I wasn't really worried. Or really, or really, I mean, much of anybody at all. I mean, once Nobody. you get out to a certain, certain point, I mean... I mean, a lot of people make the thing about, well, somebody would have shot one or deer hunt would have shot one, but you have to understand hunting patterns. I mean, mostly around around Georgia, the, the deer hunters, it's, it's people, when people imagine hunting, they imagine stalk hunting. And what stalk hunting is, is that you're actually traveling around, going up and down paths and walking around, sneaking around, trying to find something to, to, to hunt. Well, the overwhelming majority of hunting that goes on is not stalk hunting. Basically, what's going on is ambush hunting. That's right. And what, what basically that means is somebody drives along in his truck with his gun, parks on the side of the road, and, and walks out to a tree stand or someplace, which is usually not far from the road because they don't want to have to drag the animal that far. Right. And then they will go up in that tree, and they will sit there and wait for something to wander by. And typically, the hunters who hunt a, a property will not hunt deep in the interior simply because if they shoot a deer that weighs, you know, a big buck weighs 150 pounds, they're faced with either having to go in there in a four-wheeler, which makes all kinds of, kinds of noise right. and scares wildlife away anyway, or they have to drag the thing out on foot. And dragging a, a large carcass like that through woods and brambles and briars and over branches and hills and over stumps and everything is not a fun task. No. So. No, uh, in, fact, you, in fact, if you ever do catch a big buck, even if, even if you go through the process of, gutting the deer in the woods. Yeah, you still got 100 pounds of meat. And then you drag it, and when you finally do get back to the truck, you, yeah. you begin to question why you're hunting. That's right. And and the Kroger down the street starts looking a lot more attractive. That's <laughs> right. You know, I can go every every turkey season. Yeah. I've, I have never failed getting a turkey, and, and I can go right yeah. to any of the local grocery stores mm -hmm. and bring home a yeah. huge turkey. Yeah. Every year. Yeah. I mean, that's a joke. But still, you know, <laughs> the point is, is, it's exactly what you say. Yeah. And people are by nature lazy. Yeah. But getting back to my original point, um, a lot of arguments for a non, uh, say, a non-flesh and blood uh, version of the phenomenon, or theory of the phenomenon, usually centers around, you know, um, some sort of belief in the perfection of the powers of human observation or the strength mm -hmm. of it. And Pat, I know in your law enforcement career and, and other times, you've probably seen a lot of people get in trouble simply because they were totally oblivious to their surroundings. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I've always been skeptical of, you know, arguments that are based on the somebody would have done something by now right. reasoning. 
But now, Pat, I, I know you remember back in those days when we first published that report, we got a lot of hate from oh, yeah. the, some of the other organizations, you know, a couple of bigger ones that we could mention, but we won't. Right. And uh, because there were those who, you know, they were supposed to be on the, they considered themselves at the forefront of this research, and yet they had really produced no, you know. No, it's the same stuff over and over yeah. again. And, and very little, if, if, if any of it, was subjected to any kind of scientific analysis. And I think that's what made our case so unusual is that we didn't go around holding up a piece of plaster and claiming, ah, we got, you know, we got a Bigfoot cast, and then only later, if at all, grudgingly submitted it to examination. Right. I think the best thing we ever did was we, we never, and to this day, I have never, in all these years, and I don't think Pat has either, have personally claimed that the Elkins Creek cast was a real cast. No. We never made that direct claim. All we did was we took the analysis that Jeff Meldrum and Jimmy Chilcutt done that they put on paper and presented to us, and we put that out there and said, okay, we've had it looked at by a sympathetic research anthropologist and a a, uh, dramatic lithics expert, Mm -hmm. and this is what they say, and they believe the chances are this is a real animal. And that's all he's ever said. Well, I'll tell you what I did. Um, there's a gentleman, he, I, I like him, he's an honest guy, uh, Dave Bacara, and mm-hmm. he runs a Bigfoot museum up mm-hmm. in Blue Ridge, Georgia, mm-hmm. in that area. I'm sure uh, someone could just find him on the internet. Oh, yeah. Well, he, he got a copy of this of the Elkins Creek cast, mm-hmm. I believe, from Dr. Melger. Mm-hmm. And I went so far as kind of my coda on this to to do a, a signed affidavit mm-hmm. because you know I can't I cannot say that I saw a creature mm-hmm. but I can certify uh-huh. that the cast that was made yeah. was from the place it was mm-hmm. it was the circumstances in the context that's that right were, this, were this is a, that they're accurate mm-hmm. and now you know I'll go to my grave on that yeah okay and I believe he has it displayed, and he, he probably has the affidavit up there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's a good guy, and it's a, a place where if a person, you're day tripping or something, and you want to go, Absolutely. right, stop by there and actually see the thing, mm-hmm. and then you'll maybe understand better mm-hmm. my hesitancy standing mm-hmm. in the middle of a muddy Georgia creek, Yeah. you know, in, in, in dealing with the subject matter. Yeah. Now, you, you know, here's the thing. There's a lot of hate out there, mm-hmm. okay? Not just in the Bigfoot world now. Yeah. I mean, just in society in general. Yeah. People hating on people, and yeah. you know, I don't hate anybody. I don't hate any organization. Uh, you know, more power mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. You know, but on the other hand, you know, you need to follow. And when I say you, I mean the understood you uh, in the language. There's, there's got to be a tightening up of some science. Mm-hmm. And even as an investigator, you know, I, if I go and investigate something, I don't attempt to control mm-hmm. a narrative. Mm-hmm. You see, that's the thing. This this is because of politics, I think. People mm-hmm. are using the idea of a narrative. Well, that's, that's court speak. Yeah. When, you, when you're in, oh, well, this is my version of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's great that we're mm-hmm. hearing your version of, of how you didn't murder the guy. Mm-hmm. You know, even though we found your thumbprint on his forehead. Yeah. And, you know, but that's his narrative. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing I'm hearing lately is 
well, this is my truth. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you know what? There is truly, philosophically, an absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Sorry, there is. Oh, yeah. I've always, I've always said to me that, that one of the things you discover as you get older and have experience of life is that there is such a thing as an absolute truth. There is. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, I'm the, the only thing I've ever been a proponent of uh, that I think has put me at cross purposes with some of these folks mm-hmm. is the fact that I say, you know, as an investigator with integrity, mm-hmm. if you're out there, and a person reports it, and mm-hmm. you're actually going to attempt to write a report up and take an investigation, mm-hmm. you are duty-bound to include all aspects. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That doesn't mean that you have to swallow, mm-hmm. you know, the bone in the chicken leg. Yeah. You know, you can eat the meat and spit the bones out, and you can say as much in your sum- summation yeah. in the report. I mean, you have to exercise some discernment. That's right. I'm mm-hmm. not, yeah, I'm not saying, you know, if you... Yeah. Go out there, but 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 here's the thing, you know, in Pennsylvania, uh-huh. a lot of guys. Uh, I've never understood why UFO people and Bigfoot people are so at odds with each other, because you know, in the general population, they're both considered kooks. Uh-huh. You know, I guess we're kooks. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. he, you know, this guy he does this. Well, you know, I'm sorry, but if your witness says, "Look, I saw a glowing ball land." Mm-hmm. And three big feet get out of it. Okay, mm-hmm. as an investigator, you don't have to believe. You know, you can believe that the person telling you this is on psychotropic drugs, mm-hmm. but as an investigator, mm-hmm. you really should be obligated to include all of the elements of the story mm-hmm. of the investigation of yeah. the report. Yeah, that's just good investigatory work. Yeah. See, I think one of the things that that investigators get hung up on are arguing the merits and all that of individual cases when really it's a data game. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big projects that I remember in the early 2000s was people who were going in and c- trying to organize and collate uh, John Green's data. Mm-hmm. You probably remember that. There was right. a big project some years ago that people were going through, and what they were trying to do was take a... Um, very large database of sightings compiled by an individual living in British Columbia by the name of John Green, who had been a researcher in the Bigfoot phenomena up there since the 1950s and had amassed a tremendous amount of anecdotal stories, newspaper articles, magazine articles, uh, first-hand accounts, footprint casts, and everything you can imagine. And they were tr- the project was to organize this so they c- so the data could be subjected to I guess you could say modern data graphic analysis where you could spot trends and and pinpoint you know uh, locations of likelihoods you know trying to pinpoint I, th- I think at the time the b- one of the big theories was that it, that people were talking about was the theory of the migrating Bigfoot right and they were trying to get a hold of these older databases like John Green. I think Renee DeHinden had a had a similar right. collection. And um, Grover had a collection of it that was that a lot of it came from the other two. Um, and trying to get, find whatever evidence some of the other investigators um, had that were older investigators. Uh, Bob Titmus comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a famous tracker back in the day who was involved in the Bigfoot hunt. Um, 
and what they were trying to find out was frequency of sightings by area and location and time of year and what type of animal seen was it a small animal a large animal a male or a female and trying to come up with behavior patterns um, but the point to take away from all that is that we get hung up in individual stories sometimes when really when you consider the thousands and thousands of sightings Absolutely. that happen it is what you are talking about no matter how personally involved you become in one story that story is inevitably only a single data point That's right. in a massive database of information that has to be analyzed in order to come up with any semblance of the truth of what's going on That's right. and you know and there you go I think you, you really summed that up nicely what I'm trying to say which is you know I'm not attacking anybody's theory or hmm. hypothesis yeah. because you know what your theory and hypothesis is as valid as mine. Until we have something concrete, mm -hmm. yeah. until I have one in the garage and yeah. I go out and feed him some kibble and bits uh -huh. or whatever he needs, yeah. we, can, we can't, you know, we can only gather information and evidence yeah. and attempt to reach mm -hmm. a conclusion. Yeah. But we can't bend the evidence mm -hmm. to fit our own theory. That's right. One of the, and, Pat, you and I have had multiple conversations on this some quite spirited at times right. about the concept of, of what now Pat and I are both very well educated individuals and we are very familiar in academic in the academic circles about what is called a paradigm that's right now to to kind of define that for the listener in academic circles like the world of, of education science or any type of science for that matter uh, there is a thing called a paradigm, and there's also a phenomenon called paradigm shift. And one of the books that I would highly recommend that anybody read when they consider investing any significant amount of personal time into studying the paranormal is to get an idea of science as a method of investigation Absolutely. and also get an idea of how science works in a world of fallible human beings. And the best book that I can steer you to is one that got me very interested in the study of the history of science, and it's a book called the the. Let's see. I just drew a blank. the The author is Thomas Kuhn, K U H N, and he was a very famous uh, person whose whose academic uh, area of expertise was the study of the history of science and how science worked and how ideas in science came and went and how people, you know, adopt new ideas and dispose of old ideas. Oh, the, t the title is The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Mm. That's by Thomas Kuhn. It was actually a required reading for one of my elective courses when I was in college. And it explained very well how, you know, people have a very idealized and very abstract notion of how science as organized science actually occurs. You know, they have this dream and it's perpetuated by the um, by the Carl Sagan's and the, um, right. what's the other guy that always, these, these people who, who popularize science. And Asimov. I as, think Asimov was Asimov one. Asimov was one. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, uh, the African-American individual, the, uh, the astronomer. Oh, I know exactly who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, he's a cosmologist. He's, he's on there. I can't Oh, his name draws a He's very popular, though. You see he's very often. popular, yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. His name will occur to me when I 
least expect it. <laughs> age. The age, yeah, yeah, brain. But um, anyway, people tend to have an idea that science works in some sort of ideal process where everybody is out there investigating the universe and trying to see what they find out. And then when somebody comes up with a theory then that seems to be supported by, by evidence, then they put that theory out and all the other scientists in the world go, oh, okay, well, that's the new theory. And then they just go about their business. Well, science as it really works in the human world is, is a far cry from that. Now, what generally happens is that you have scientists who invest, who invest 30, 40 years of their career espousing a certain theory of how the universe works, whatever it may be, whether it's cosmology or hominid evolution or, or anything else. And what happens is, is that if some new theory comes along that may threaten their outpost, they don't just throw away 40 years of their life and say, oh, okay, well, I was wrong all that time. Well, this, this must be the new one. They will fight it. They will resist. They will try to disprove the new theory. And the famous line, I think Thomas Kuhn actually uses in his book, is that scientific theories advance one death at a time. Mm. Yeah. Because the older generation of scientists, the people who spent so much of their academic career, you know, saying that this particular theory is the truth, when a new theory that comes along to replace it comes along, it is a long, hard, bloody battle in the world of science to get one paradigm to replace an older one. Now, as investigators who do not consider science as a religion or a philosophy, right or any kind of paradigm or set of beliefs that we're supposed to cling to, regardless of how true you think those beliefs are, we have to regard investigative science as just that, a method of methodology of investigation, and what we discover in the course of that investigation is an entirely separate subject. Yeah. Now, we got a, a good bit of hate and admiration, uh, I have to admit, when we published Jimmy Chilcutt's report through Jeff Meldrum. Right. Uh, and uh, we had some memorable exchanges with some folks. I think uh, among them I can remember is Eric Beckard. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And what was funny about him was he wasn't contesting what we found in the thing. He was What he was mad about is why we didn't publish the report through him, which I never, I, I never could... Well, you know, in his defense, I'm going to say, now his, some of his theories were really wild. Yeah. But you know what? He he was an he was a professional antagonizer. I will give him be, that. He could be. Yeah. Yes, but he, he was skilled at that. But the thing is, he's kind of he was at a place where we are now. Yeah. And you know, he's like saying, "Look, you've got to look at this thing in mm -hmm. a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. There's something more going on." Yeah. And of course, you know, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Y you know. Yeah, and the point I'm driving through with all with all of that is that, and I warned you that we would go off in tangents. <laughs> right. But the, the the point I'm driving that is is that whenever you're investigating something that is outside the normal paradigms of science, you have to understand that science is not and never intended to be a religion. It is not intended to be a philosophy, even though people try to make it a philosophy. It is simply a method of investigation and That's tools right. in a toolbox to help you figure out a process that your brain is capable of figuring out. Now that's which gets into a whole other subject. 
But when you investigate a subject like Bigfoot, uh, the worst trap you can fall into is to disregard a theory simply because in your mind you hold that it cannot be, therefore it isn't. Right. And you see a lot of that going on in science. So, and we caught a lot of hate from people who back in those days uh, espoused a lot of very, uh, very paranormal out there kind of fringe theories about what was going on because they looked at us as, as being, you know, with Meldrum and Chilcutt and, and those folks that we were, you know, they made us out to be the proponents of the hardline science. Right. I guess you could say. And uh, even more out in front of the organizations who were touting themselves as being the forefront of science in the investigative field. And you can probably figure out who we're talking about just by me saying that one sentence. Right. Well, you know, I just say this. You know, I I don't know, no matter if you listen to this podcast or wherever you are, you know, as an investigator, the paradigm is shifting on you, guy. Mm-hmm. If if you are are a just absolutely devoted, this can only have a flesh and blood mm-hmm. explanation. Mm-hmm. You you know you're about to get left behind. Yeah. And let me tell you why. Because every year there are more people born, and every year the population density increases. Mm-hmm. And the more people you have, the lower or actually the higher the probability mm-hmm. that eventually, if this is a flesh and blood creature, it's going to be found. Now, this has been progressing since 1967, or really before that. But, you know, these certain areas, yeah. even the most remote areas are building. Mm-hmm. More people are being born. More yeah. people are moving there. Yeah. Okay? So, if, you know, we may, you may have 20 more years mm-hmm of clinging to the notion that this is a flesh and blood creature. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'll be the first to admit to you, it would actually relieve me yeah. if it were. Yeah. Okay? I'm, I'm going to say well, there, there, there are some other th- there are theories, too. For instance, you know, there is the possibility that the animal could simply go extinct before it's discovered. That's possible. Yeah, there is the possibility. And, uh, but it's, it's the, th- the thing you have to, I mean, I've, I, kind of stay closer to the flesh and blood theory. You, you probably may have figured that out by now. But I am open to all possibilities simply because I guard against the tendency to say, well, I, it can't be, therefore it's not. Because that, that line of reasoning will get you in a lot of trouble. I mean, you can, you have to keep an open mind about everything right. that you investigate. And you have to keep, you know, because at the end of the day, if you were to take out a piece of paper and a pencil and to list all the possibilities, you may come, you know, maybe a dozen different things, all the way from they're here in UFOs to it's flesh and blood creature and everything in between or sideways from that. At the end of the day, it's a game of statistics. You know, how what probability do you give to each one? Mm-hmm. Now, if I give a 95% probability to flesh and blood and a 5% probability to other reasons, that's still 5%. That's still a chance. I mean, to give you an example, how many days have you seen rain on when it was only a 5% chance of rain? Right. You know, I mean, a, a 0.0001% possibility is still a possibility, and we have to keep that in mind. Well, you know, I'm, I'm this way. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, once I was very much uh, a devout flesh and blood investigator, but mm-hmm. these days, 
I really am just being honest in mm-hmm. saying I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I've left it open to a spectrum of possibilities now. Yeah. I don't think anyone who who's holding to uh, a flesh and blood um, theory about the creature mm-hmm. is a hundred percent wrong. Yeah. And and I don't want you know the listener to walk away with this notion mm-hmm. that well. He's just a paranormalist, and he thinks X, Y, and Z, but that's, yeah. it's not true at all. Yeah. I think that we just, as, as a group of people who are in, interested mm-hmm. in this subject and investigating, mm-hmm. just have to be a lot more honest with our data. Mm-hmm. And we've got to really sit down and think about, um, you know, even if a story given to you, if mm-hmm. the, especially one that has some physical evidence, mm-hmm. okay, that you can... Uh, Eliminate as having been made by Junior out mm-hmm. in the the yard, you yeah. know that sort of thing. <laughs> that that this person seems credible. This person had no reason. And those of you who live in the South will will when he makes that Junior comment know how possible that actually is. That's <laughs> very possible. So you know you, you you can't just preclude it because the person said that it disappeared in a flash of light. Mm-hmm. Okay, I had I had one case like that. And it was a roadrunner case, which means basically Bigfoot's, you know, running across the road, runs down through a field, gets behind a shed, poof, mm-hmm. disappears in a flash of light. Now, the two ladies, they were younger, mm-hmm. uh, on the way commuting to college. Mm-hmm. You know what? Uh, you know, I have hundreds of hours of interrogation mm-hmm. as a law enforcement officer. Mm-hmm. I can sit down and read you. Mm-hmm. You know, done it many times. And you can tell pretty much when a person is fabricating as they go. Mm. You know, these they were just very startled. Yeah. Okay? What was that? Can you please tell us what that was? You know, mm-hmm. we don't under we've never seen this before. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there is no explanation. Mm-hmm. There was little or no physical evidence. It mm-hmm. crossed the road and it went to a pasture and it was grass, mm-hmm. it was hard packed. Mm-hmm. Why did it disappear in a flash of light? Well, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And and you see, that's the I think the first yeah. real step that a person makes as a good investigator mm-hmm. is being able to admit and say, yeah. I don't have an explanation for why this happened, yeah. but mm-hmm. what I do have mm-hmm. is the, the the good common sense enough mm-hmm. that I'm going to take the entire report down. Mm-hmm. I'm going to file this away. Yeah. I'm going to keep, and I'm not going to alter it. Yeah, and just I immediately throw it away oh, because no. oh well it doesn't fit yeah. our the big yeah the big the big problem you always get get into is is trying to judge on a human basis what constitutes valid data or not right. that's where you really get in trouble right because one of the like going back to my example about about listing out all the possible theories is that one of the reasons that I think a lot of people cling to the flesh and blood theory myself included is that it's the one theory that lends itself to proof. For right. one thing, and what do I mean by lending itself to proof is that well, in order to prove something is scientifically valid, it implies that you are able to control all of the variables involved, and the one of the issues with a quote unquote paranormal explanation for or paranormal theory uh, regards a bigfoot phenomenon is that if it is a multi-dimensional creature entity is it some kind of spiritual being is it anything like that is is it does not lend itself to scientific analysis because you are 
we as people, I mean, that is not a phenomenon you can contain in a laboratory. Uh, a dead body you can, a spiritual being or an interdimensional being like that, unless we become much more advanced, I mean, there we cannot impose laboratory controls on that sort of thing. So, no. so but now the question is, does that make it valuable or invaluable? There comes, therein lies the problem of perspective. And people have very interesting perspectives when when they start talking about what constitutes proof because one of the things I actually had in my bio that I decided to edit out, edit out was that I've uh, I did put in there that I'm a lover of history and I love reading history and one of the, the most fascinating periods in, in human history and the most impactful period was the Renaissance yeah. otherwise called the Enlightenment where uh, some of our first quote-unquote modern scientific discoveries were being made and a very interesting thing happened during the Enlightenment and the Renaissance is that prior to that there were scientific advances being made but the attitude of humankind in general was is that we live in a created universe which I believe we still do and we live in a universe that is fundamentally considered beyond the powers of human comprehension to comprehend it in its entirety I mean, the attitude was is that the universe was the domain of the gods and that made it, you know, in a fundamental way impenetrable by the human mind. I mean, so many aspects of it will always remain a mystery to us. And I still believe that the universe, well, I, I, I'm a believer, but I've, I believe that the universe is a much more complex, a much more unfathomable place than we think because... I believe that there is no evidence that says that the human mind, either individually or as a species collectively, is intellectually capable of discovering all the secrets of the universe. Right. Okay. I think the universe may be, and there's really no evidence to, to refute it, that the universe may be more complex than we can comprehend. I mean, there may be complex patterns that are in the universe that we're just not intellectually capable of seeing. The dark period of history that I believe happened in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment was that because we made a few basic scientific discoveries, you know, both by the human body and by cosmology and, and chemistry and, and, and mechanics and many other things, is that people suddenly got the notion that, well, you know, if we keep going along this path and we can figure it all out. I mean, we can go through and figure out everything that's going on in the universe. I mean, we can, we can, somehow it's possible that we can know everything. And uh, suddenly that threshold that used to be way up here about what constituted knowledge in the universe suddenly got drugged down somewhere below where people believe the intellectual human limit was. Right. And as a, someone who was trained in science and someone who has studied a lot of history and human nature, I see no evidence whatsoever that that's the case. Right. I don't know if you have, Pat. But yeah, I well, I think that, you know, I don't want to sound like a person. <coughs> I just don't, I, I just really don't think that, at least at the present time, that because of technological limits, 
perhaps we're not able to perceive things that are taking place around us mm -hmm. right now, even though we do have, and, I, and I, in the defense of the the, the philosophy of, of many of the, the, I don't know what, what we call these pre-scientists, yeah. the people, you know, Copernicus and, and the, the the generation that was there. Yeah, all throughout history, I mean, the Greeks. I mean, some of the some of the uh, the flowering of the Arab culture, where they made a lot of scientific scientific advances in those times. I mean, they've done a good job, and yeah. I'm not going I'm not going to cast mm -hmm. stones and say that yeah. that by using this methodology, mm -hmm. they haven't really opened things up so that we have a much greater Mm, understanding grasp. Yeah. And, and grasp of, uh -huh. of what the material world is and, yeah. and these laws and how things work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's the nagging question. And perhaps I wonder if, in a way, we're not placed in a position so that there's always doubt. Mm -hmm. So that someone up there taps us on, on the shoulder and says, you know what, kid, you know a lot, mm -hmm. but you don't know everything. Yeah. And I just really feel like, uh -huh. in a, in a, a general sense, that a person needs to always keep that in mind. That when you go into these areas and you're delving towards, mm -hmm. you know, trying to figure something out, mm -hmm. you know what? You're going to be left with more questions yeah. than you are with answers. At least I yeah. have been. Yeah, I have always been a skeptic of humanism and people's haughty concept of human reason and what it's supposed to be able to accomplish and that and I've always been a, a profound skeptic of the concept that human reason is going to save humanity or save civilization or yeah, I don't you know, know. To, think, to lead us seems to be yeah, true. to think that the people a lot of people think that you know just because we have uh, iPhones thinks that you know that's our our own intellect is going to lead us into some sort of Star Trek universe where, you know, we're we're suddenly you know trans we have transcended our animal warlike natures and have, you know, are, are going out making peace with all these other wonderful civilizations and it's just not. You know, I really if you're going to talk about the Star Trek universe, I, I hate to be a pessimist. Yeah. If if we're going to lead into any universe, we probably most humans are going to be a lot closer to the Klingon. Empire yeah. than they, than they well, are it's like to you know, uh, it's like one of I mean, Carl Sagan was a popularizer of science, but a lot of people have a much higher opinion of him than I do. He said a lot of dumb things over the years, and one of the things that he would always propound that just sounded down at the outset was is, is his belief that any civilization that is more advanced or is advanced enough to come here and visit the Earth, you know, across the interstellar spaces must by solely by nature of that be a more advanced, more peaceful, more knowledgeable, more sympathetic civilization. And there is no you know, no evidence at all. Matter of fact, the only advanced race we have any experience of a, uh, with is our own race, the human race. And in the million in the six or seven million year history, if you want to go all the way back to our earliest ancestors, I mean, even in, in the last couple of centuries, with all of our technological advances, we have not transcended one iota of our warlike, tree-swinging no. human nature. And I don't think we're, we're going to. Yeah, we're still as, as selfish and murderous as, as our species has always been. We have just developed the technology to just more easily enable it all. Well, you tell you what, we're going to have to suspend there. I've got a couple of things to say. Mm -hmm. and. Guys, tune in next week because what we're going to do is we're going to expand the thought of Elkins Creek. We're going to talk about 
the Georgia Swamp Ape Research Center. We're going to kind of delve into some of our investigations and the things that we've discovered. Uh, before I go, you know, I want to say, you know, these are our opinions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't state anything as fact. In fact, it's all alleged. Okay? <laughs> yeah. These are just opinions. And, yeah. you know... We're just another dark corner of the interwebs. That's right. That's it. So, you know... Eat the meat, spit out the bones, as they say here down south. What you take away, if you take anything away, take away the fact that, you know, be honest in your investigations and just be prepared. Now, before I leave, a little housekeeping. The two books that we mentioned earlier, one is by Weird, is called, entitled Weird Georgia. Mm -hmm. It's by uh, Jim Miles, and I'm not certain it's M-I-L-E-S. I'm not certain. It is if it's uh, still being published or not, but you could probably find Weird Georgia. That kind of chronicles some of the uh, adventures of the Georgia Swamp Ape Research Center. And a very excellent book, which really details all of the uh, Elkins Creek incident. This is by another uh, Georgia author, Jeffrey Wells, W-E-L-L-S. It's entitled Bigfoot in Georgia, and I know for a fact that Bigfoot in Georgia is available on Amazon if you know you would like to explore this further and read about it. I also believe he has a Facebook page. You may look it up by that. Okay, I, I'm, I wasn't aware, but I believe so. He, you know, stand-up guy, you know, and, and I like one thing uh, that I really appreciate is the fact that he he researched this independently. Mm. See, so you know, you read the book and you find out, oh well, you know, this guy he independently researched this incident. Mm. He he found this information. So, you know, the incident stands as it is, and, you know, I don't know, I think I'm putting it up. Mm -hmm. This is kind of, you know, okay, it's out there, mm -hmm. you know. Here it is. Here it is. So, anyway, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, look for the announcement, and uh, we'll have another show on next week. And we're going to explore even further mm -hmm. into the outer edge of reality mm -hmm. here at Anecdotal Notes. Thank you, and I hope you have an excellent day. Absolutely. Take care. <laughs>